Last week, we spoke with several of the candidates running for the New York City Council for the 2021 primary. I spoke about how a political candidate is more than her policies. She is a person. And when you vote, you are giving an individual your trust that he will do what he said he would do. Unfortunately, bold promises are conditioned by context, and our city is changing in unforeseen ways. In the end, each of us does not vote for election promises, but for that person who we feel has the essential qualities to lead our city. My Bar Crawl Radio co-hosts, Rebecca McKean and I, Alan Winston, are recording midday on June 12th on the first day of the 2021 New York City primary. We're on the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, across the street from the mortuary, down the block from the Eleanor Roosevelt Monument in Riverside Park. Today, we'll speak with five of the six candidates for Manhattan Borough President. Four Democrats, Ben Kalos, Lindsey Boylan, Kim Watkins and Brad Hoylman, and one Republican candidate, Lou Pugliafito. We are going to spend about 20 minutes with candidates for Manhattan Borough President. Our main focus is getting to know the person, with a bit of dabbling into policy. We hope these conversations will help you decide which person you feel can best represent you and your family's interests as Manhattan Borough President. Lately, we have been featuring the best live jazz from the Upper West Side, before COVID-19, that is. You've been listening to Stephen Feifke's Jazz Quartet, performing at the Gin Mill Speakeasy on Amsterdam and 81st Street. Last summer, when BCR was recording from the middle of West End Avenue, we spoke with the outgoing Manhattan Borough President, Gail Brewer. She explained the responsibilities of a New York City borough president. You are the leader and in charge of the borough of Manhattan. Sort of, yes. The mayor's in charge, let's be clear. But I try. Okay. Well, the borough president, because people don't know, what does the borough president do? And on the charter, in the charter it states four specifics. Number one, you have a big role in the zoning and land use, which is the backbone of New York City. Number two, you appoint in Manhattan about a thousand people. You know about the community boards. Yes. There's also a solid waste advisory board, youth boards, cultural boards, business boards, school boards, etc. Cultural boards. So it's about a thousand people. Third, we allocate funding, not dissimilar from the mayor and the city council. And fourth, we can introduce legislation. So that's the charter mandated borough president. Our first guest for this Meet the Manhattan Borough President candidates is State Senator Brad Hoylman, who represents much of lower and mid-Manhattan, some of the Upper West Side, otherwise known as the 27th District. Born in Phoenix, Arizona, Brad grew up in Lewisburg, West Virginia, attended Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship studying political science, and then completed Harvard Law School. Before becoming a State Senator, Brad served as the Chair of Manhattan's Community Board too was president of the Gay and Lesbian Independent Democrats and the Empire State Pride Agenda and other community organizations. As state senator, he passed several bills, including Child Victims Act, Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, and he worked to pass the TRUMP Act and others. 
You notice T-R-U-M-P spells the name of the last president? Maybe we'll get to ask him later about Does that. Really? Yeah. Sure? T-R-U-M-P, yeah. Oh, so, sounds familiar. Senator Hoylman. Yes. It's great to have you. Great to Welcome, be Senator. here, Rebecca. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very so, much. Appreciate it. We want to spend some time getting to know you. So I'd like you to tell us something about yourself that has nothing to do with politics. Could be sports, could be, mm. you know, anything. Thank not, you. not all politicians can answer that right away. <laughs> yeah, well, let me just say thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, I do represent the Upper West Side up to 72nd and down to Canal. So I hope a lot of your listeners do know me from our constituent work. You know, one of the things I hear most on my street, on the street, is such great work that my team has done and thanks to them during the pandemic whether it's helping folks with their unemployment insurance making sure that they don't get evicted from their apartments or getting them vaccine appointments i mean we we arranged 2500 vaccine appointments staying up all night and logging on to that crazy system back in the day it seems like a lifetime ago doesn't it yeah. uh and so i just really want to give a shout out to my team but something that they probably don't know about me yeah. i would say that um i <laughs> well see that, all that other stuff was easy yeah it was it. you know I think that ultimately um, they may not know much about my family and the fact that um, I have a husband and two young daughters uh, a 10 year old and a 3 year old really the lights of our lives that we had them through gestational surrogacy which was an effort that I led up in Albany to legalize and that you know for LGBTQ people and individuals and couples with challenges of infertility surrogacy has been a real lifeline for them and another option to pursue whether it's foster or adoption so that personal journey and that's what they call it in the surrogacy world was so meaningful to my husband and me and our lives and now we have two beautiful daughters as a result one just you know finished school yesterday uh and in fact um is the inspiration for me on a couple of fronts. One, she's in my TV ad <laughs> that's running. Uh, oh, we'll have to catch that. Yeah, that. she's charming, uh, much more charming than me, and photogenic, much more photogenic <laughs> than me. And secondly, um, she's dyslexic. And we didn't find out she was dyslexic, um, Alan and Rebecca, until she was nine years old. And, um, you know, that's just about five years too late. Uh, you should find out as soon as possible when you're dealing with the challenges of dyslexia or other reading uh, disabilities. And one of the things I want to do as borough president is institute universal kindergarten dyslexia screening. It would cost 99 cents a child and take less than 10 minutes uh, to administer for each of them. And when would that be done? It would be done in kindergarten. Right. Which is interesting because my daughter was screened for eyeglasses in kindergarten. And she came home and she had this official looking letter which was sealed. We opened it and it had a big red stamp on it that said failed. And we're like, oh my God, what has she failed? She failed her eyeglass exam. She didn't study for it. She didn't study for it. And, uh, and you know, little girls are pretty cagey. So she was able to work around the challenges of dyslexia, even though the signs were all there. We didn't identify them but parents generally speaking don't know and a lot of teachers don't know i'm a teacher and a lot of te i don't well, teachers I'm, are I expected to know i wasn't trained no it's a specialist uh, kind of uh, uh, uh assessment and there's something called the shaywood screen it's a it's a laptop or a, a uh 
a, no, a, a notebook or a tablet kind of test that you can administer. And you can identify up with 99% accuracy children who uh, should be pulled out for further evaluation. We could use the borough president's dollars to do that for every kindergartner in Manhattan. It's no coincidence that 40% of the men on Rikers are dyslexic. And 15 to 20% of school children are dyslexic in our public school system. And we're not providing them the support they need. I know that because I went through the whole process myself. So that's something that people may not know about me. And it's something that, wow, it moves me to action and moves me to want to run for this office. What is one local activist group you have supported with either a contribution or your time? Oh, well, so many. I mean, the Save Our Storefronts Coalition uh, was one that was engineered during the budget. It was a direct response to the pandemic. You know, we're going to see a third to one half of our small businesses not reopen. And they organized all across Manhattan, in fact, across the entire state, trying to get small business relief dollars um, into the budget up in Albany. And we got them a billion dollars. Uh, now the challenge is going to be getting that money out the door to small businesses that owe back rent. Uh, one of the things I want to do to assist small businesses moving forward uh, and the Save Our Storefronts Coalition is ensure that um, tenants are able to collectively organize. I think that model, I've seen it in different parts of my district, including the Upper West Side, the Croman Coalition. It's called the Stop Croman Coalition. A bunch of tenants who all had the same landlord named Steve Croman. Not a good landlord. <laughs> uh, typically on the worst landlord's list year after year. Went to prison uh, for his um, misdeeds, misdeeds yeah. uh, toward tenants. And lo and behold, turns out that hundreds of tenants across Manhattan had the same landlord. They didn't know it. They formed a coalition. They were able to act collectively, share information, file a class action lawsuit, go to the attorney general's office. I think we should do that on a tenant basis for, for you know, every tenant in Manhattan who might share that kind of experience. And that includes commercial tenants, too, because there are so many commercial tenants who don't know that the landlords uh, are the same across the street. And you know what? Maybe the tenant across the street gets a better deal because he or she negotiated better or used a different approach. Mm. Collective action is about sharing information and acting in concert. And I'd love to create something we're calling a Manhattan Tenants Union for both residential and commercial tenants. Fantastic. I mean, nothing is more sad during this pandemic than to see, as I did in my neighborhood, you know, I live in the village, there was a, a new restaurant. A woman came here with her family from Colorado to open a southwestern cuisine restaurant. In 2020. That's right. Called the Banty Rooster. And boy, she got great reviews. Um, she had a nice following early on from the foodie crowd. She gave up everything to move here for her dream and spent a lot of money of her savings to, to kit out this restaurant. Well, the landlord suddenly, you know, said, you owe me all the rent that's due in the middle of a pandemic. She said, can I just pay you a percentage of my sales? Can you give me some time? I need, you know, a little bit of wiggle room here where, you know, where nobody's coming in. We're like, in, in, in our to-go business, you know, they hadn't picked up yet. Landlord refused to budge, pushed her out, she had to pack up everything. By the way, the landlord got to keep all of the fixtures in the, in the uh, that, that, that she had that installed. she had installed. They're still there now. She's gone. She went back to Colorado. Her dream's gone. Uh, and what's what's with the store? Space still empty. Wow. So one of my ideas, and I've introduced legislation and want to carry it forward uh, in the city, is a vacancy tax. 
Uh, if you're a landlord and you keep a space open for more than six months, you push out a tenant, you're going to pay something to the rest of us for keeping that storefront empty. I, I just got from your assistant, Justin, that we have like five minutes, so... Don't uh, listen to him. <laughs> okay. I always overrule him. Okay. All right. All right. Because we're, we're having a good time. Uh, Beck, you had, you had a couple more. Uh, well, okay. So where do you go in Manhattan to find peace and quiet? Mm, peace and quiet in Manhattan. That's not an oxymoron. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not. not. It's, it's not at it's all. Not. Thank God well, for our parks. I know. Central Park. I mean, it is uh, an oasis. The Hudson River Park, it is closer to me than Central Park. But walking along that cycling along that stretch with the brine and the air i mean there's really nothing you know you can smell the ocean and 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 really feel that you're and, and hear the seagulls oh my goodness yeah. i love it uh, and you know there are small moments of peacefulness uh i always love the you know the reading room in the new york public library mm. um whenever i'm Nearby. I never thought of that. That is a very peaceful oh, place to go to. It's just heaven for me. I studied yeah. for the bar there, so I have a very close kinship with it. Yeah. But, um, you know, when my children aren't around and when they're in bed, you know, at 8.30, <laughs> yeah. and my husband and I... Who, that hour. That, that hour. hour. Oh, the golden hour. <laughs> and he's become quite uh, a mixologist during the <laughs> pandemic. All right. Maybe he's got a job here. <laughs> Maybe at he's got a job I have spent here. so much money on alcohol this past year. <laughs> I mean, we have tried drinks that I never even knew existed, and I've acquired a ta- taste for tequila that I didn't know I had. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but tequila is medicinal, I think. I don't think I it's think it is. Yeah. I mean, if it's and again, I, I don't know how to make a drink to say my I can pour a good glass of wine. You and your husband and daughters belong to Bet Simchat Torah, yes, and it's an LGBTQ uh, synagogue in the village. Um, according to the website of your synagogue, it attracts and welcomes gay men, lesbians, bisexuals, transgender, queer, straight individuals, and families who share common values. Um, can you describe what those shared values, common values are? I think progressive progressive change is a shared value. Issues like criminal justice reform, parole justice reform, my temple along with other temples, progressive temples reform and others across Manhattan have led an effort to get the parole laws reformed. The last couple of years in Albany have been really transformative around police accountability, around parole justice, around elder parole, around Child Victims Act, which is an issue uh, assembly woman Linda Rosenthal and I led up in Albany. Whose office is right above us. Right above us. Yeah. And she's been on our show. She's been on she's the show. She's been such a champion on so many issues uh, and I've been proud to work with her and proud to have her endorsement particularly on the Child Victims Act which allows adult survivors of child sexual abuse to go to court, seek redress and have their day uh, before a judge because this, formerly the statutes of limitations were so short. But, th- but I would say that that real um, desire for, uh, for progressive values and change, and I think around criminal justice and and penal reform is it's a real movement. And I think congregations uh, like mine and churches and mosques ha- ha- have been very active in this. It, it had to have to have religious figures on these issues of moral consequence is really important. Great. So, so the, the, the historical story of the borough president has, has changed, and it seems that it's, the powers are more limited these days. How do you see the position of the borough president? Well, I think Gail Brewer has shown that the powers are not that limited. I mean, they're limited like in any office, to be honest. 
it depends on what you do. I think it's about how you pick your battles and how you build a coalition and how you articulate your vision on an issue. I think I've demonstrated that uh, passing 120 bills in Albany on some of the biggest issues in recent years, like keeping tenants in their homes during the pandemic or making sure that kids stay healthy by getting their vaccines, a battle I led against anti-vaxxers who come to my apartment on a regular basis mm. and demonstrate outside of it. And I have to answer questions to my neighbors, like, why are these people demonstrating outside of our building? Uh, but I, I know, just interviewed an anti-vaxxer. I didn't know she was oh, anti-vaxxer. No. I was interviewing her for something else. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a thing for sure. But I think that the borough presidency is really um, what you make it, as Gail Brewer has shown. Power still lies with this amazing budget, the ability to introduce legislation, to have hearings, to hold the city accountable. It varies by neighborhood to neighborhood in Manhattan, and the borough president does and should be able to point that out and hold government accountable. So in many ways, it is an accountability office, but its central role is one of planning and being the planner-in-chief, being the convener-in-chief for the whole borough. You. Very rarely is there an office where, at, at the municipal level of government, there's not, not that many that report directly to voters. Uh, city council members have to go through a legislature and a speaker and committees. Borough president reports directly to, to the people. So on land use, it's particularly important. And it's why the idea of convening is exciting to me because of the Manhattan Tenants Union um, concept. We'll be able to bring tenants to the table all across the borough including tenants who live in public housing. And it sounds like we're having an emergency right outside, but it's not, not, not here at Gap Not here, we're good. I know you have a very busy day. We had a couple more questions, but if, Please, you, no, if you feel you need to, no, uh, no, to, to, to get out, then that's fine. You've been talking about a lot of policies that you uh, have supported and that you will mm -hmm. support. Uh, we've learned a lot about you. Is there one particular piece of legislation or policy that you want to pass to the city council that you think that you want to just hang your hat on? Well, we got to address the homelessness crisis. Yeah. I mean, it is truly a humanitarian crisis. And the fact that we have 55,000 New Yorkers, a third of them children homeless, is a shame. It's, it's totally disgraceful in a city as wealthy as ours. So I think there's an opportunity in Midtown with 20 million to 50 million square feet of empty office space to convert that to supportive and affordable housing. Oh. We could do that with city council's involvement with our local community boards, rezone those neighborhoods. There's $100 million that Albany has already allocated uh, for that. And we should get to the job of building supportive and affordable housing. Our homelessness population cannot just go through the cycle of different shelters and street life and shelters and drug use. They need, they need organizations like Breaking Ground in Times Square in my district that provide wraparound services and give them uh, respect and dignity to live in their own space. That's what it's about. That's why we have street homelessness. They don't want to go to shelters because they're unsafe. Who, who would? Who would? Yeah. Who would? And you're, you're exactly right, Alan. So uh, I, I think if, if I had to lead a cause, and I know it's something of great concern to Manhattanites is to address homelessness and housing uh, insecurity. Some see the borough president position as a political jumping off point to a higher office. Is that in one of the reasons you're running? No. Uh, um, 
I, I do see it as a, uh, a jumping off point from the Senate where I serve, but I think that's important because I think the office is really important and I think people need to look at everyone's record and I think the best way to judge how someone's going to do in office is what they've done in the past. There are a lot of great candidates though running and I have respect for every one of them. Each of them brings a different skill set and level of expertise. But, you know, I think if you stack my nine years and 120 bills and the initiatives I've led to be, you know, a progressive champion of reform, you'll see that I measure well and I hope I can earn voters' um, trust. Okay, one more question. I know you have a very busy day. It's the first day of primary. Uh, and, and I'm sure you have a lot of other stops before, and we really appreciate you. I only have 28 more stops. Okay. Oh, oh I thought there was a lot. I didn't, I, I didn't yeah, know there was a few. Which of the mayoral candidates would you want to work with? I am still deciding, okay. to be honest, like a lot of voters. I think that's one of the reasons why on the first day of early voting, turnout has been relatively light. I think people are still deciding on that mayoral We race. are. I am. Oh, right? Absolutely. There seems like there's a lot more information we need. We're getting a lot of it. It's coming quickly over the last couple of weeks. Um, the debates have been, I think, extremely informative. I have my eye on a few. Whoever it is, I can guarantee you, is going to be a progressive champion of reform. I just got to figure out who that is. <laughs> How about a woman? For sure. I mean, about time. I think it's... More than about time. I work for a woman. I like to say that. Andrea Stewart-Cousins, the first uh, black woman, the first woman to lead a legislative chamber in Albany. And I have to say, you know, her style is fantastic. It's collaborative. Uh, she seeks to build consensus. Uh, she's not about showmanship. Um, and she's uh, a quiet force of nature. That kind of, uh, you know, vision uh, is something... And, and that kind of skill set is something I'd really like to see in the next mayor. Well, Brad Hoyleman, thank you so much for joining us here on Barcore Radio at uh, Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. Cross street from the mortuary, by the way, so, thank you. you know. Um, yes, we, we, you know, we wish kind you of a one-two one, punch there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. One, you, you get your drink and then you go. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. All the best. All the best. Good luck. Lindsay Boylan's Twitter describes her as follows. Mom, progressive New Yorker, fighting for a livable city, former state government official and urban planner, candidate for Manhattan Borough President. She, her. Born in New Mexico, Ms. Boylan studied political theory at Wesley College and earned a master's in business administration from Columbia University. She has spent much of her public career in urban planning and management and served as deputy secretary for economic development and housing for the state of New York. Lindsay Boylan. Hello. So great to have you on Bar Crawl Radio. Hello. So tell us something about yourself that has nothing to do with politics. I love film composers. <laughs> I do too. I love them. You know, I, I mean, I love lots of kind of music, but like right now, um, uh, on the, you know, way up here, I was listening to one of my uh, Thomas Newman mixes, you know, to kind of get in the mood, get so in what, the mode. What, what, what films did he make? I mean, he's done a ton of stuff. One, actually, one of my favorites that reminds me of the Upper West Side, and oddly enough, is the the old King Kong soundtrack um, that has a song called Central Park on it. And it's actually quite You mean quite the old, beautiful. old King Kong? No, like mid-old right. okay. production. Right. Like 30, I 40 love, years ago. There are so many good film composers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Do you know Bernard Herman? 
I don't. Uh, I need to uh, check this yeah, out. Yeah, he's a Hitchcock one. Oh, Ver- well, I need Vertigo. to. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, I love old Hitchcock films too. Elmer Bernstein. Okay, Elmer I'm Bernstein. Oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. All right, then. So good. You know, and it gets you in the mood. You almost don't want words because, you know, you're going to do something. You got to stay the course. And I just love it. I love film. I, I teach film, so one of the and one of the things I, I didn't do is know I, that. Well, yeah. I See? wouldn't tell you, you know. already. Yes, and I love to love to play music for the. <laughs> oh, for the we, we play a game with our family, and we're getting way off track. But we're this is way fun. Off track. I love it. He played uh, soundtracks from different movies, and pe- we had to guess what the movies were. Well, it was difficult. It's hard, but you know, there are some that have like flourishes that they play with for a long, like Philip Glass. You know, you have different people who play with a flourish their whole career, and you can kind of indicate well, it, yeah. or you know. That's true. Yeah, uh, all the greats, John Williams. Like you know, John Williams. Oh yes. Right? Well, oh, I just yes. did. Boom, 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 boom. You didn't do it very well. Yeah. <laughs> Even like a Danny Elfman. I love Danny Elfman too. I mean, it's a different yes. genre, yes. kind of, but yes, yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Film music. Okay. Yeah, all right. Great. Okay. We have something in common there. I think. All right. So, on a night out, without the kid. Yes. What is your favorite bar or restaurant in Manhattan? Uh, Besides Gephardt's. Besides yes. Gephardt's, of course, I would say the one right down the street from my, my apartment, which is uh, Cook Shop. It's this amazing restaurant. I live in West Chelsea now, but my first apartment, which I'm sure we'll get to, was on the Upper West Side. But uh, Cook Shop, the local, the local bar in the neighborhood and attached to the restaurant. You know, you see people you know. Yeah. It's nice to see them again and again and again. It's your neighborhood. I don't like to walk very far to get a drink these days. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's in, I mean, it's great. It, do you have a, a favorite Upper West Side? Oh, I have a favorite everything on the Upper West Side. I mean, my first apartment was on 85th between Central Park West and Columbus. I loved Jackson Hole before oh, they closed it. Oh, we remember it. Jackson Hole. It was my favorite. Like, Hamburgers that, amazing, that kind of you could barely get your mouth around. Amazing. And it lived right around the corner from it. So I love Jackson Hole. I mean, I love ore washers. For, uh-huh. I, I love a pastry person. We lived on person. 85th Street for a very short time. That's right. When we first moved to the city. That's right. They've got Prohibition. They've got all the great... I mean, they've got some great stuff over there. Right. It's beautiful. I'm close to the park. So where do you go in the city to find peace? Central Park. Central Park. So I came to New York wanting to be like Jane Jacobs and get into urban planning. and, And that's what I've been in some part of my whole career. But getting off topic of work parks and central park you could just go there you don't need any you don't need to spend money you can listen to your uh you know back then like an um it was like the ear it wasn't even earbuds just listen to some music uh read a good book well Uh, we're in central park because that's a big big question i mean i like i probably say right near the boathouse but near the bethesda fountains because you i like to see water you can always feel a little bit closer to calmness when you have water around you there is a spot overlooking bethesda fountain Uh. It's like not. It's like in on the rock above it. Yes. That you can sit, and there's another place in the Rambles yes. that shoots out into the lake. Yes. If you sit there, the, it's the north, most of- north kind of eastish. Yeah. Yes. It's incredible that view. You got to be a New Yorker to know how to get there. That's right. We don't tell people, right? That's right. No. <laughs> Sorry. Someone wants to email Barco Radio. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a map and show you how to yes. get there. Yes. Right. Okay, what is um, one local activist group that you've supported or spent time helping out, contributed to? Yeah, there are so many good ones. I mean, I would say NAMI uh, New York because they're, they do all the mental health work uh, in the city of New York. I think it's that much more important. I mean, we had a pandemic of physical uh, health. We have a 
current and coming mental health pandemic. Right, and they do a ton of work. NAMI stands for? Um, National Association of Mental um, Illness. And right. they are, this is the New York City office. And they do all sorts of really important work with different community groups. They do groups around families who are supporting someone going through mental illness. I mean, uh, mental illness is pervasive. It's in every family. And um, I do every year their walk uh, and fundraise for it. And I try to do as much as I can in support because it's in every family. I come from a family of, of multiple generations of women who dealt with mental illness and you know addiction-related issues. And uh, so I love what they do. Shout That's out to Nami. That's Shout great. Shout out to yeah. Nami. All right. Those were our getting to know Lindsay yeah, questions. Um, let's get a little bit of political questions here. Sure. Um, you seem to be a big supporter of the the present Manhattan Borough President, yes. uh, Gail Brewer. And we know Gail, she's been on our program. What will be your take from her leadership style sure. that you'll use if you become Borough President? In the Boylan administration. There you go. There you go. And um, people are like, are you like the Mayor Lindsay or the Boylan? And there's always a question. I'm like, well, no, my family was poor immigrants from Ireland, so there's no connection to anyone, just as an aside. Um, yeah. But Gail was my first city councilwoman uh, on the Upper West Side, and I was on Community Board 7. And the thing I love most about her style of leadership is she shows up everywhere. And she's very unassuming. She's not about herself. She's not about pomp and circumstance. She's about listening and doing something about it. And that's the thing I most want to, um, you know, follow her footsteps on. Because I think not just for borough president, there's no leader in this city that matches her in that way in terms of showing. She's like, where's Waldo? I'll be like, wait, I just saw you, you know. And, and then she's at the place before and after me. And um, so and her husband, I just, Carl Snyder, you see him all over. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's she's um, beyond impressive in that way. And she's truly a public servant. Um, and I and I and I only hope to kind of wake up every day and, and think about it in that perspective, too. And you may have to be dealing with her as a city oh, yeah. council member. Right? I hope so. I mean, no one deals with Gail, right. yeah. <laughs> but I'm excited to work with her. And, and I hope, you know, when I uh, if I'm lucky enough to win, which I think we have a good chance, uh, I'll sit down with her and say, you know, give me the give me the talk of your advice. You know, what can I learn from you? There you go. So of all of the uh, talking about all, all the issues that you've yeah. been talking about in your campaign, what is the one piece of policy that you really want to push as the borough president? Livability. So I'm an urban planner. I'm the only career urban planner in the race. And um, how clean our city streets are, how how we invest in tree pits and planters and sanitation and good lighting has an impact on every end of the spectrum. Um, quality of life and safety, public safety and people's interest in being in New York City. And we want to show them that this is the best place to be and investing. I'll have $100 million or so of capital money to invest in the public realm. And it's what we just talked about. How do we do that across the borough? I think you know, the mayor is going to have a lot of challenges, whoever that is. Every city council member does. But the borough president's job is all about the built environment, how we make it's safe, how we welcome everyone into it, and how we invest in it. And that's what I've been doing my whole career, managing Bryant Park and other public spaces. We were interviewing uh, District 6 council, uh, people that are running for yeah. the council um, last weekend. And uh, one of the women talked about the fact that a um, woman who had come up to her and asked her, what are you going to do about the streets, the sidewalks? You know, that she, tri you know, an elderly woman, she tripped. Yes. And, you know, it's a big deal. It's right. a huge deal. And... You know, I gotta say, for a city that has close to a million people dealing with mobility issues, that's not even counting, you know, the off, you know, um, if someone has a trip and fall and has, um, you know, temporary mobility issues or is it has a stroller, we do not make this city 
uh, safe or welcome for people dealing with mobility issues. Uh, it's fixing um, the sidewalks. It's working with the restaurants and local businesses to ensure, especially with outdoor dining now, hopefully being permanent, that we make sure everyone is accountable and responsible for their spaces, making them safe and making them quali quality, having curb cuts at corners so that it's easier to get through with a wheelchair and whatnot. It's that kind of stuff that makes you want to be here and makes you feel safe being here. Okay, a, a question that's really connected with that. You've been involved with opening up segments of Broadway yes. and other public spaces to walkers and bikers. I am a biker. I've been biking in the city for 100 years. Um, Me too. And, okay. <laughs> I love biking in the city, but it's not always safe. Yes. We've been working with Lisa Orman of Streetopia, Upper West Side. I'm sure you're familiar. I love Streetopia. They're doing tremendous work. They, they are. Um, would you talk about the importance of open streets and what you would do as Manhattan Borough President to continue that work? Sure. So two things. 70% uh, about of our public realm is streets run by cars. And cars are the most unsafe thing we have in this city. Now, I'm not saying we're going to get rid of cars. I do think we're going to rely on them less in the future, and I think that's a good thing for everyone's health and safety. Um, I took the 25 and 25 pledge uh, from Transportation Alternatives, which says we take back 25% of our streetscape from the cars and make it for traffic calming, enhancing things like outdoor dining, but also community spaces like open streets. You know, when we did the Broadway Boulevard and I specifically did the Harold and Greeley segments and then I did parts of um, Chelsea and meatpacking that the DOT also pedestrianized. The meatpacking area is gorgeous. It's great. And, yeah. you know, you find even if things are done temporarily like open streets have been done, you know, you don't change the, um, the, 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 the pavers or anything like that. You don't put up permanent bollards. You can do a lot inexpensively with good tree planters, tree pits. You can do a lot with programming. You can do a lot with... Um, inviting community organizations to be a part of it and frankly empowering them funding wise resource wise and support rise to make these things really permanent and and I found you know especially in front of Macy's that that was probably the most challenging part that we did when they pedestrianized in front of Harold and Macy's because you got thousands upon thousands of people coming into Macy's at that time you've got cyclists coming through there, pedestrians you got 34th Street you got to do a lot to indicate to people visually at different levels that this is not the same environment as 34th Street. And both because it makes them want to be there and it reinforces safety. And you do that with tree pits. You do that with beautiful planters that, you know, do traffic calming as well and protection programming. We did Capoeira my first year when we did that. Um, and, and you did then, Capoeira? Yeah, well, not well, but we brought it into the spaces. I, I, I covered uh, uh, Capoeira. Yeah, we did salsa. We, we brought in these um, massive umbrellas. You know, we don't want to be Europe. We want to be best New York we can be. But there are some things that places like Paris are doing and their mayor, Anne Hidalgo, to show people what a great thing they can have when we take back our streets for so, people. So there could be a New York-style streetscape that's yes. different than Paris and different Ooh, than Rome. We're different. Well, of we're, course it's yeah. going to be we're different. We're brash. We're, you know, <laughs> we're, we're tough. We're New York. We're, our, our, the way that we do taking back our public realm is going to be different, but it's going to be equally important. And I will say the first um, tax return I ever got my, from my urban planning job, I, I spent on getting my first bike, and that was my road to freedom. And interestingly enough, we look at history, the road to freedom for a lot of women even too in the women's rights movement was biking and interestingly didn't, didn't enough look at it that way yeah and interestingly enough in the last year the biggest uptick of cyclists are women and you know one of the things i gotta say and maybe this is like superficial but we don't have to wear the, the suits and the skirts to go to the no. office to be able to get around it's it's a freeing experience so now 
I think the biggest, one of the biggest challenges on that that I'd like to deal with is people feel like pedestrians in some cases are at odds with cyclists. It yes. doesn't have to be that way. No. If we invest in it well, we have good leadership, we have good stewardship at the local level, things that make uh, the street safer for cyclists will make the street safer for pedestrians and vice versa. You, you speak like an urban planner. I, yes. I mean, I can, I can hear that you have <laughs> that kind of language. Um, as borough president, uh, you don't have the same powers as you would as city sure. council member. Sure. Um, how would you use this platform? I know you've already sort of indicated that, yeah. but can you say a little more about how you would attack or how you would approach yeah. this position? A few things. You know, I think community boards, I served on CB7 when I first got to New York, and I served on CB5, which is kind of the central business district, uh, as a public member when I managed Bryant Park and, Her and the 34th Street Partnership. Community boards are the secret weapon, I think, of so much of our city. And there's so many people doing good work on them. I do think that this pandemic has opened up opportunities for more people to serve. If you've got a kid, if you've got an overnight shift, you can't serve at a, at a board where you have to be in person several times a week, every week. Mm -hmm. um, remote membership, increasing opportunities for who can participate means that that can really become a secret weapon, I would say, a whole cohort of people similarly focused on this mission to make our city more livable. That's really what it, that for me is about. And every decision, um, we're all driven to bring people into the community boards that are rep representing the diversity of our borough, but also the bigger vision of where we need to go. And it's not a political statement, it's just where we need to go in terms of the climate crisis, in terms of inequality, to think differently about our city. So community board's hugely powerful. $100 million of capital money to invest in our borough yeah. annually to enliven it. Yeah. Um, and actually, I got to say, just naturally, two other things. Uh, you know, I'm more of a management type than a legislative type. That's how I spent most of my career. And that's what this job is. Um, you know, and there are three gentlemen, all legislators. And, you know, I think they're, they, 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 they know what they're doing on the legislative side. This is a management job. And you know, as a as a woman in politics, most of the things I've accomplished and power I've 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 gotten has not been stuff that was given to me. It's stuff that I figured out how to make something of, and um, I will do that in this job too. I like how you explain the community boards. I don't think enough people know the the power of the community yeah. boards and how they could communicate the desire of the community. Yes. To, yes. To the legislature and. And you would be that conduit, I guess. Yes, and especially if I'm going to go up against maybe uh, at, at times the mayor or the governor who I've worked for, I've got to have a cohort of folks that are, we're all on the same page about what we need to do. And that's only going to come if it's not about me. It's about what our communities need. And I think for far too long, our community board members have felt as though they work for the electeds rather than reaffirming that I work for them as a public servant, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people see the borough president position as a political jumping off point. Sure. What do you see it as? I think this is gonna be the toughest job of my career because where we are in the pandemic, we've got, you know, we had a governor out there saying New York is unsafe. You know, we've got a bunch of poor leaders saying, don't come here, don't use the subway, don't do this, don't do that. The borough president has to do all the things we've talked about that are really complicated and working with people, uh, operationalizing problems, paths to solutions. 
Uh, if I do this right, it's going to be exhausting. I'll probably take a few years off the end of my life, <laughs> candidly. Um, and I think if I do it right, then, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that there is another job at the city level for me. So I, I don't really, <laughs> I don't think, and, and honestly, you know, um, people are like, well, you ran for Congress. Do you just like this experience of running for office? Oddly enough, I'm a natural introvert. I actually do not love the attention. I do not love to see my face everywhere. Um, but I love to do this work. And in some respects, I think this moment in time was created for someone with my background and skill set to do this work because it's really what I think is neat. I think it's fun. As hard as it'll be, that's fun for me. That's like yeah. going to a rock concert. Yeah, I love the fact <laughs> that it's a management job. It is. It yeah. really is. The first I heard say, call it that. It's, yeah, and that's, it's, it, that, that rings true. It's totally different. I mean, you can propose legislation at the city level, but you can't vote on it. And I don't really want to lead with legislation i want to weigh in on really important decisions and influence budget and uh, make departments work together dot small business services you know hpd all the different groups that really influence people's lives all right so which which of the mayoral candidates would you rather work with oh boy i mean i'll say this i'm gonna work with whoever it is um i'm kind of befuddled by how this is all <laughs> conspired towards the last week of who might be our mayor um i think it would be really exciting to work with my wiley um you know i think it would be yeah i i um i'll work with whoever it is um it may end up being that this role of borough president particularly for someone who's an urban planner and focused on the ways we can improve people's lives not even getting to things like policing it could be really important contrast and foil to who may end up being the mayor. So I'll just say that. Okay. <laughs> All right. One more All right. Question. Last question. You worked for Governor Cuomo from Absolutely. 2015 yes, to 2018. Um, we don't want to talk about the difficulties you had with the governor. Sure. But rather we want to ask you, is there anything that you take from those experiences yeah. of workplace harassment that would inform your work as borough president? Huge. I mean, I, um, I kind of try to reflect every day, even on 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 how I interact with my own team, um, because he's the extreme of poor treatment, poor management, abusive environment. But all of these things are a spectrum. And, um, you know, candidly, I've been sexually harassed in some way, shape or form throughout my career. This was just much more egregious and much more destructive for so many people, so many women. But I think it's important that uh, we're always self-reflecting on the impact we create for other people. And I'm always doing that. And so there's that. And I think having had that experience, I mean, I really appreciate that I got to oversee the state's recovery work in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. I really appreciate all the powerful stuff I got to do and influence and be a part of to help people. But I don't think we have to do it with brute force and abuse like this governor does. I mean, it's abusive to control the MTA and tell through your board members and then say that the subway's unsafe uh, and that you don't ride it. And it's abusive to put all of your, um, you know, people who just do what they're told on all of these powerful commissions that influence the lives of people in a city in which you don't live. So I think very carefully about um, the responsibility of being a leader and um, everything he does, I try to do the opposite of. There you go. Thank you very much, Lindsay Boylan. Thank you. Manhattan Borough President. For joining us here at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. Well, well, thank you so much. Thank you very much for the yeah. opportunity to talk with you and meet you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that.
This is Bar Crawl Radio, a podcast which argues that the best conversations happen at your neighborhood bars. We're now recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street. Next, we'll be talking with Kimberly Watkins, who is also running for Manhattan Borough President. Kim Watkins has had a varied career, worked in a guest services for SeaWorld Parks, moved to Manhattan in 1996, and headed up the Susan G. Corman Foundation's New York Race for the Cure. Right now, she is the president of Community Education Council 3 and the founder of the Harlem Schools Summit. Her work has led to several borough-wide initiatives in admission and program equity. Kimberly Watkins is a parent of a public school student and frames herself as the public school candidate. We were looking for the dog earlier. Did you see him? We didn't see him, but I, I know someone who knows the owner of that oh, dog, yeah, so I've been George, talking. Yeah. I have a dog named Indy. Now, tell us about this dog, Kim Watkins. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, you're talking to a possible constituent here, I guess. I, I am a, um, a marathon runner and one of the, the individuals I train for the, the New York City Marathon. He has a friend who lost a dog named Indy uh, just a couple of days ago on the Upper West Side on Tuesday. Mm. And she's only had him for a couple of months. Oh, wow. Um, so he's a COVID dog. He's, he's a COVID dog. I also have a COVID dog named Indy. Uh, and so as soon as I saw the notice that an Indy was running around the Upper West Side, I, um, I got some of the flyers and I've been trying to, to help. So it's uh, just a coincidence that, that yeah, both dogs are named both Indy. Both dogs are named Indy and uh, my Indy's safely at home. Looks a little different than that dog. But anyway, it concerns me that there, there's, it's a great after effect of COVID in some ways that there are many, many dogs you know, that have been adopted, especially the shelter dogs that... Um, that we know exist, but um, but by the same token, they're with so many dogs running around. I think uh, uh, you know they're scared. They come from places like Texas and Georgia, and they get to the big city, and then they freak out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dogs yeah. are of a place too. Yeah, they they are of a place that they live in. They're exactly. used to right. She seems so concerned. I mean. I know everyone. We, everyone is. We really connect to our, our, our pets. I know. Me too. Yeah. Me yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've started each of these conversations with a few questions to get to know you. Good. Okay. So first, Kim, tell us something about yourself that's not related to politics in any way. Well, I, I already said uh, that I'm a runner, so you already got that one a little go, bit about go. me. Um, but probably the other thing about me that is interesting is that I'm a major history buff. Oh, I love history. Oh. And so I, I came out of Virginia, Tidewater, Virginia, where I was really incl- inculcated with like American revolutionary history. And not too far from Yorktown, I grew up learning about the Battle of Yorktown, and I knew all about Alexander Hamilton back in the 90s. And then I moved to Harlem, and I discovered that Alexander Hamilton's house was in Harlem. Took me a really long time to find it. Actually, no one really knew where it was back in those days. Because it's beautiful. It was, it's like up on a hill, and it is now. But it was moved in 2006. Oh wow! Because and it was moved twice in New York City because it was in, like laying on the grid system when it went up north, and John Jacob Astor saved it and moved it to a little plot of land next to a church. But then it got, it was sort of dilapidated by the time 2006 came around. It really needed a renovation. And so luckily, Charles Rangel recognized this, Congressman Rangel, and he was able to put the money in to help get it moved to where it currently is. But ever since 2002, I have run 
the length of the, from where his grave is on Wall Street to his house every year on July 11th, which is the day of the duel when Aaron Burr um, uh, shot him. Now, is this you do on your own, or is there a group well, of people that do it? Now that I'm a, one of the Roadrunners Club trainers for the uh, for the Team for Kids charity, we've been doing it as a group. So that for the last, like, eight years, we've been doing it as a group. But it's been me alone a couple of times, and then, you know, with a few friends a couple of times. Right. But now we're a little bit... I guess you could also kind of create a, a run to where they had the duel, because it was right across the river, wasn't well, we, it? That would have to be a triathlon. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to swim across. <laughs> swim across, okay. <laughs> That's right, yeah. That, that yeah. might not be so easy, all right? So. Great, history buffs. You guys get together. She's always getting into history. Well, I have ancestors that were around in around here. McCain's. In, in the uh, um, revolutionary era. The signing, sure. Signing I'm, of the I'm direct descendant of uh, George Reed, who oh, there you uh, go. Is, uh-huh. is of the Reed uh, family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So sure, I guess sure. in the... Sure. That's why we look into that stuff. So so you're a runner. Where in the borough is your favorite place to work out? To work out? Well, I only exercise in my home. I am a runner who does not like exercise. I will say that. I do not go to a gym. I haven't for decades, and I exercise in my home in the morning. And then I run. Well, what's your favorite run? run? My favorite run is probably the West Side Highway. I love the northern part of Manhattan, and I kicked off my campaign, actually, by running the whole perimeter of Manhattan, which is 32 miles. Wow. Yeah. In one run? Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. My goodness. I'm tired just thinking of it. (laughs) I know. Well, I've been running all the streets of Manhattan. Do you know? This is a fun fact for people that don't know that much about Manhattan being so small. We're 23 square miles, but we have 508 miles of streets. Right? Yeah. So I've been running all of them. I'm not quite at 508 yet, but we will, we will have, continue Have, have you run this 72nd Street? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Of course. I mean, right. I live in Harlem, but I'm down on, in this part of uh, a town quite a bit. Right. What right. is one local activist group that you have supported with a contribution or with your time? I mean, already, already you said the, uh, the runners... Runners Club Charity, Runners Team Club. for Kids, yes. Um, but I, I would like to lift up a group that I'm involved in right now called Parents Supporting Parents New York. It was formed uh, by a black woman in Harlem named Tanisha Grant as a function of um, the desperation parents were feeling at the beginning of quarantine. And she knew, she's on CEC5, I'm on CEC3, or, or was on CEC5, I'm on CEC3. We knew that parents were not being supported, especially parents in marginalized neighborhoods. And so we started this support group and ended up putting a GoFundMe page together, raising money for laptops for kids in Harlem. And I will tell you to this day, there are still children in the public school system who do not have fully functional computers and are learning Zoom school learning off of their parents' phones in some cases. So impossible. It's it seems impossible, but I I am not kidding. It is still happening. People fall through the cracks and they fall through the cracks in some ways because like you have to have internet access in order to request a computer. And that's another problem, getting the internet. Yeah, (laughs) and even then having a secure internet uh, access. There are so many strange kind of um, nuances to to the effort to make sure we can remote learn um, for everyone. And it, it really just didn't pan out that way for every student. Right, and that's parents support parents. Parents supporting parents. As a way of supporting that uh, agenda. Yeah, yeah. Where do you go to find peace in the city? Or in in Manhattan? Manhattan. In Manhattan. Easy. The North Woods 
in, uh, down by the waterfalls for the most part, since it's really close to where I live, and I enter at the top at one time. People don't even know that those waterfalls exist. It's Narnia to me, you know, like stepping into the wardrobe because once so you're We're talking in about there, Central Park. Central Park at the very north end. There's this beautiful waterfall. Um, some rolling hills and the it's a little manicured these days we've we've done a uh, it's lovely but in some cases I, I think we've done a little too much manicuring uh, of, of that of that property but it's it's just really serene and uh, absolutely that's the place yeah I think Olmsted and Vaux's view was to, that it be more natural looking not so manicured especially probably. the northern part of the, yeah. of the park yeah. 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 yeah the central park is amazing I've, I've been hanging out in the rambles lately and the it's are too. oh mm-hmm. my god you get lost in there right but we don't have any tourists in the northern part yeah which is kind yeah, of amazing the, yeah. the, ra- the yeah. rambles so lately we've been not too touristy lately but right. it'll get it'll it'll, it'll come back i think it's coming back right okay your favorite place to have breakfast or a restaurant or a bar besides get parts of course <laughs> besides get parts Oh, my favorite places all seem to have closed down. I was such a big fan of the Abbey Pub up on Broadway and 105th that went when I cut all my, you know, sort of single girl life teeth on 105th and Broadway. And I, uh, I used to go to the Abbey Pub a lot. But I, just north of there, Le Monde is, is still a French bistro that I still love and go to all the time. Um, and in Harlem, in my own neighborhood, is, uh, is the Harlem Pizza Kitchen. I've got a, an 11-year-old daughter. I have to confess, we eat a lot of pizza, and we, we get it locally there. I love pizza. And as far as you're concerned, Harlem Pizza Kitchen is the best in Manhattan. Oh, my goodness. That's a hard question to ask, and I, I would What's offend so many pizza, pizza kitchen owners if all I right, said that. I don't right. know. Okay, you like the Harlem but Pizza. But I, I do love Harlem Pizza Kitchen. Right, right. <laughs> um, so we wanted also, you know, because you are running for Manhattan Borough President, to ask some political things. Uh, the New York City Borough Presidents no longer have the power they used to have. I mean, there's a whole history and reason for that. Mm. Uh, we won't get into that. How do you see this position, and how would you handle it and use it? Yeah, I mean... I. I would describe it from my perspective as someone who really needs to be a chief shapeshifter because it's not a legislative job. It's not exclusively a planning job. It is really a steward of the, any of the issues that we have going on at any particular moment. Clearly, at the moment, we are faced with some very acute challenges in our city and for sure in our borough. Uh, I am, as, as a uh, history buff and, and steward of political science and public school parent, really concerned that we are not teaching our youth to engage in our government, in our, in our city, in the best possible way. And I think that if we were to shepherd a whole new um, agenda of building youth into all of our conversations, we would be able to more easily make policy decisions that progressively move the city to sustainability, to affordability, uh, and to um, to some budget governance issues that I think that we really have. Um, Specifically to the issues the borough president can, or the the challenges that the borough president's office is going to face now, of course, have to do with housing and, and representation of uh, community boards with respect to housing and NIMBYism. Um, not in my backyard, changes, right? Right, okay. right, not in my backyard. Um, natural human conditions, of course, but where our... Um, 
um, where our borough is almost a microcosm of the city itself, where there's so much wealth and so um, so many people that are really vested in the um, the sort of advocacy around affordable housing. We also have so much oppression, so much um, true desperation in terms of people without homes at all, people who are stuck in the, the shelter system. And then as an example, people like myself, I live in, an, in low income HDFC, so it's home ownership. Uh, but there's, there are vested efforts to try and restrict those kinds of affordable housing options. And of course we know that NYCHA is, is struggling, has been struggling for a long time, and, and we've been looking to privatize it as an option but that's not what the tenants want. Um, and we don't, as a city, we are not really able to sustain affordable housing if we don't have a public housing option for people. So we, the borough president, is, the next borough president, is going to face a lot of really big challenges in terms of uh, affordable housing. And I, um, I believe real strongly that we have to navigate the, the different pockets of privilege that we have in the borough in a way that helps build unity among different neighborhoods and moves the borough along progressively to, to make sure that people aren't harmed by the policies. Right, and I, I hear a lot of agendas, a lot of, a lot of things you want to work on, but as a borough president, you don't have legislative powers, you have, how do you do it? How do you push, how would you push these ideas forward? Yeah, and I think um, in some ways, the race and all of the races, right, are kind of like, Who's the chummiest and has the most money because they are the chummiest with the people that are already in power? And they want to convince voters that it's that chummy sort of relationship that they already have that's going to make progress for them. Whereas I actually think that as someone who doesn't have necessarily legislative power but who can introduce legislation mm -hmm. and hold hearings on issues, being outside the circle of influence and power can be really helpful to make that leap from being a city that's equitable, a city that's not equitable, to being a city that is truly equitable for people who are being harmed right now, right? We gotta remember that the majority of people that live in New York City are not benefiting from the government in any way, shape, or form. They are being harmed by it. COVID, people have died because of bad decisions. People are on the streets because of bad decisions. Our schools are failing because of bad decisions. So we need new leaders to come in and shake the tree. We gotta shake up the system. And I am definitely one of those people that can do that. And as borough president, you've said you'd put more nurses into public schools? We, we need a, a full-time permanent nurse in every school. Just this morning, I heard um, the chancellor say that there's a nurse in every school, but that is not accurate. We have contracted for-profit companies to put temporary nurses in our schools. But guess what? Those temporary nurses, they don't build relationships in our schools, and they don't have access to student health records. So how can we say that we're prioritizing public health and public schools if we don't take the invest, rather, in permanent salaried nurses, which is a no-brainer to me at this point in time. Um, uh, Gephardt's is starting to open up here. I we've can been, see that. We've we're been, about to have a drink. We've, and, been, yeah, we've been sitting really, here. We really settle in. And we wanted to, and uh, we, I don't know, we may have a little drink later, but um, we've recently been working with Lisa Orman 
of um, Streetopia Upper West Side. I'm sure yes. you're fam familiar with her work uh, and open streets. And um, I, I, I know that's part of your agenda is more open streets, make Manhattan more car free. Can you say more about your 10 year green plan? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it really, I think we started with this where I, I have been running all the streets of Manhattan and I very strongly believe that in a space, a, a small island of, of just 23 square miles, 508 vehicular street miles is excessive and it is antiquated and we need to open up our streets to pedestrian use, to cyclist use, and open streets provided a vehicle for us to kind of get a glimpse of what that might look like. But we know that we're being tested on this right now because there are 1.6 million people that live in Manhattan where there are 2 million cars registered in Manhattan. <laughs> Wait a minute, 1.6 million that people. That's what, what I read. 2 million cars. And 3 million parking spaces. So places for cars to park. You know, so when we know that not every Manhattanite even owns a car, there is something very skewed here in terms of the way our, prior, our, our urban spaces have been planned. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to do in running all 508 miles was be able to say, yeah, we can't necessarily get to car free anytime in the near future, but reducing by 100 miles, 20% reduction of vehicular street space for open space for more green space, we need more, we need more planters and we need more spaces for butterflies. We talked about you know, other animals. We need more places for our pets and for, um, for, for the flora and fauna of, of the environment to, to begin to, um, to restore itself. And um, cutting 100 miles out of that space is really important to me. But also on that green plan, we need to focus on environmental justice. And by that, I mean recognizing that in our marginalized communities, so uptown Manhattan, we have invested a ton in downtown Manhattan, but in uptown Manhattan, where there's a higher percentage of families that live in poverty, we have more lead in the water, we have more asbestos in our walls, we have not shored up the, um, the, uh, the, the shoreline, and we need to make sure that we're investing in uptown Manhattan. I am the girl from Harlem, uh, the candidate that, that's really experiencing this on a, on a daily, first-hand basis, and that will be my priority. Right. Wow. Wow. Do, so a lot of people see the borough president as a, a political jumping-off point. How do you view it? I want to do the work. I had no ambition to jump into the very competitive, very dirty public political space um, at, this, at this stage of my career. I've spent six years fighting for the public schools of New York City and District 3. As the CEC3 president, I've managed to get two of the most progressive educational changes in our city through on the Upper West Side and in Harlem. I love where I love our city, I love where I live, but it is so unfair to see day in and day out politicians, the establishment, continue to sort of plow through life with blinders on as to like what regular people are feeling and experiencing every day. And I am one of those people. I have a regular, you know, small business that's struggling. My husband had to shut his business down during COVID. We're both small business owners. I was fired for getting married by Andrew Yang. I am, uh, I am a woman who has experienced many issues related to gender discrimination. And I have a daughter who I want to leave a better place. 
So I'm ready to do this work because I want to fight for a better New York. I am not looking to step up to some other political position. It's not my ambition. I am happy doing the work as directed by the job. Kimberly Watkins, wow. Uh, it sounds like you, you're, you're a very passionate person. I mean, you can hear it. You're, you're invested personally yeah, in, well, in, in this be. race. You have to be. And I think that uh, a lot of people have said to me, you know, if you're not willing to play the game, you're never going to win the election. And I think, uh, I think, you know, we, we saw a little bit of, of some of the kind of maneuvering of the established politicians just vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, this, the space of these last few days as we're getting closer to election day, um, the way that quiet voices, people that didn't raise as much money, get shut out of conversations. And, um, you know, and my, my sort of ground game retail politics space is more about talking to people, being underground, and really focusing on the things that matter to regular people. So yes, I am passionate about it because I really want to do the work. And um, hopefully voters, that translates with voters, because if anything, COVID should have shown us that you can say you're the Fauci of New York or you can say that you're, um, you know, you're going to you're going to save um, spaces by by doing you know, this policy or that policy. But if you've been in the public space for, you know, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, and you've been a part of what's happened in this city over the last 16 months, I, I think maybe it's time to let new people take over. Kim Watkins, thank you so much for you joining us so on Borough Pro Radio. Have a great weekend, thank guys. Thank you, too. Good you luck too. with the race. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ben Kalos was born in Florida and grew up in poverty in Manhattan with a single mother. Ben studied at Bronx Science High School and SUNY for the undergraduate and law degrees. Presently, he is the city council representative of Manhattan's District 5, introducing over 40 bills. And he was ranked as one of the best lawmakers in New York City by city and state. He has been active in making government actions more transparent with his Open Government Foundation. Ben Callows met with us later on this first primary day via Zoom. Darling, <laughs> ain't good enough of your love, baby. You know, you're being recorded there, Ben, so... Uh... I don't... <laughs> it's one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons when uh, Barry White saves the snakes of Springfield. Oh, I have to look back at that So, one. Ben, thank you again for joining us. Uh, we wanted to get to know the candidates. What's one thing about yourself that has nothing to do with your job as a politician or a representative that can tell us about who you are? I think politicians really try to hide who they are so that they can hide behind different things. But for me, in this race, we kind of learned that I just had to come out and share some things that I probably spent most of my life hiding. I grew up here in the city with a single mom and shared a one bedroom and not something I've ever really advertised or talked about. Uh, I was on free and reduced lunch at Bronx Science and like I got teased pretty hard so I didn't eat and I talked about it once at an event where we got free lunch for every kid in New York City so that there wouldn't be a free lunch line anymore. Everyone would just get it. And so that ended up being something that the Times wrote about and really 
kind of helps me understand even throughout this whole piece about why do I care so much about hunger? And as we've been having this race and talking about things, I realized that just went back to the fact that I was just this hungry kid who went hungry because he just wanted to have friends and no kid should have to make that choice. And then just very deeply, I've been a tenant all my life. When this race started, there really weren't any tenants in the race. And I, I don't know any New Yorker who feels like they've made it and they don't have anything to worry about and they're, they're set for life. Everyone just, I know, feels like they're getting pushed out. And when's that straw going to come that breaks the camel's back? Oh, boy, Ben, you are so right. You are so right. We are rent controlled and have been forever. And my whole life has been, when is the next shoe going to drop? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking truth. So I want to fix that. That's, that's, that is like when you sit down, you, you get enough therapy. It all just comes down to the same feeling you're feeling of just like, living on that edge of like, when are we going to get first out? And I think there's some, I'm very idealistic. I wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't, but there's this cynicism I have of just like, I think the reason that folks feel trapped, uh, a lot of folks I know are trapped in rent controlled or rent stabilized units. So they're either underhoused or overhoused. I'm underhoused is because uh, real estate developers get whatever they want from elected officials who take their money. And that's why I never have, I never will. Uh, I've been doing that since 2013. I've got folks who are in this race who are now be doing it because I set the example, but I know if I'm gone, there's no one going to be doing the right thing anymore. Mm. So for me, it's just a battle for not just survival as an elected official, but just survival as a person who wants to live in this city. You referred in in your writing and in, in your website to the Hebrew phrase, tikkun olam. Can you explain tikkun olam to us and why it's important to you? Yeah, you're going to get a deep cut right here. So um, I was raised uh, Orthodox. Uh, I went to a Jewish school, a, a synagogue led by Rabbi Arthur Steiner Parkey State School. And uh, my, my great-grandfather was actually an Orthodox rabbi in Budapest in Hungary. And when Kristallnacht came... Uh, when uh, the Hungarian and Germans actually uh, defaced uh, and broke broke glass, broke the glass of stores throughout uh, Germany and Hungary. And, and actually my great-great-grandfather was actually killed on Kristallnacht. Uh, there were a number of Jewish people who were brought out to the Danube where they were slaughtered in mass. And so that's how my family came here. And so Judaism has been incredibly important and in giving me that Jewish education was. And so within... Judaism, there's this concept that we're not just here to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we shall die. We are here because when God created the world, God in, 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 in all of God's might and perfection uh, created the world in an imperfect state and that our role in creation and why we are here is to fix what God did wrong and put the world back together in a better way. And so in a secular way, it's just leave world better than you found it. Uh, but for me, tikkun olam is very much just what drives me every day. And the secular version of this is uh, when, uh, it, did you ever see the Wonder Woman movie where Diana says to her, is looking at the, the sword 
and says to her mom, when do I get to wield the sword? And the, and, and the, the queen of the Amazon says to Princess Diana, you must be the only the mightiest warrior of the Amazons can do this. And then you have this training montage. My moment would have been, uh, I said something very similar to my rabbi of just like, how do we fix things? And uh, he said, well, well, you should become a lawyer and then you can write these kinds of laws. I want to fix laws so that they help people instead of hurting them. Where do you go to find peace in your and quiet in, in your neighborhood? Or in Manhattan. Or just in Manhattan, anywhere. During the height of the pandemic, it was really scary around April, March, when it started to get warm out. And so we tried going to Central Park, but like everyone was there. No one was wearing masks. And true. it was really frustrating with a two-year-old. We tried going to the playground, but none of the kids were wearing masks. And eventually the playground's closed. Um, we eventually found at Carl Scherz Park, which is pretty much the only park that the Upper East Side has, that if we got there at like 9 a.m., we could find a portion of the park where we could spread out a blanket that was like six by six. And we could usually stay there from about 10 a.m. until 12 or one o'clock. And then at one o'clock, there would always be a jerk who would come and just put a blanket right next to our blanket and not social distance, which was always just our cue. Like, we're not gonna have a fight. No one's gonna be Karen. We're just gonna like leave. Yeah. And so um, that's really how we got through the summer, just 9 a.m. 9 a.m. to 12 o'clock at Carl Scherz Park. Then the winter came back again, and uh, folks, the playgrounds opened again, and mask wearing at the playgrounds, all the kids were doing it, so it was felt a lot safer. Um, but yeah, uh, Carl Scherz Park continues to be a place, and I actually most of the playgrounds in this city don't really get the funds they need. We actually did a three and a half million dollar renovation to Carl Scherz Park Playground. Nice. About half, a, three quarters of a mile to half a mile from where I live. So um, on some days, I will uh, push my daughter in a, uh, a three-wheeler to uh, Carl Scherz Playground for the 20-minute, 30-minute walk so that we have a big playground. Very nice. Right. We do. Are we hearing your your kitty cat in the background there? Her, we're hearing yeah, your you daughter. Hear somebody snoring. It's my cat. Oh, that. She's okay. Incredibly scintillated. Her name's Pandora. She's the first feline of the Upper East Side. I'm a. She she she's the boss. <laughs> I can hear her uh, snoring. The yeah. Boss is uh, my daughter, who you probably hear uh, making oh. happy sounds. Oh, we we heard the happy sounds. Yes. Absolutely heard them. Yes. Ben, you said that quote. You want to be Gail Brewer when I grow up. You yeah. said, you said, I say it all the time. What do you admire about this woman leader? What do I admire about Gail Brewer? When I first started getting involved in politics, it was 2005 and I'm a real nerd. I, I'm a lawyer, but I'm, I grew up at Bronx Science. I met the internet and I started building websites. I was in the New York Times at, at 16 about the new after-school job. I was making $15 an hour building websites. And I'm, it's always, the bugs never gone away. And so I first met Gail Brewer because she lost a speaker's race and she got punished with this technology committee, the Selects Committee on Technology. And I was a real big, I am still a big good government person. I just want government to work right. And so she was working on a bill called Open Data. She is the mother of open data in the, in the United States of America. 
and she helped pass that law. I remember testifying on that bill. That was the first time I met Gail and I kept testifying. And if you've ever testified at the city council, one of the things is you have to show up at 10 a.m. to register to speak, and then you have to sit there till like five o'clock. But oh, like, wow. I'd always be like, Gail, can I go early, please? And she would always be like, of course, Ben, you can. And so I remember when I ran for city council in 2013, I was running to succeed Jessica Lappin, who was also running for borough president. I had coffee with Gail and she would sit with me. She sits with anyone. Everyone has her mobile number, which is incredible. I don't even do that. Like anyone will meet with me. I'll do my first Fridays, but giving away my mobile number to the entire city. Uh, when people ask for my mobile number, I'm like, would you like Gail's number? Uh, but um, I, I admire that about her. But um, I actually said to her, I was like, Gail, I want to support you for borough president. And she was like, Ben, you can't do that and still win. Like you're, Jessica, Jessica will kill you. So she wouldn't even let me endorse her. We ended up sharing a lot of volunteers and I'm really glad. And ever since she's been borough president, we've been working really closely together on everything. And she's unflappable. She's always been there. And every time I pick a fight that I can't win and somebody comes for me, particularly real estate developers, Gail Burrow always shows up to save me and the community. And we actually stopped super talls from being built in the East 50s. I was leading the rezoning and the mayor wouldn't do anything on it. And Gail and Liz Kruger showed up and helped us get it over the finish line when I wanted to rezone to stop empty buildings uh, with uh, unlimited voids of unlimited height. Um, Gail Brewer helped me get it across the finish line for the entire borough of Manhattan. So the thing that I think I admire most about her is not taking real estate pisses off my colleagues and they're mean to me. Um, I got rid of outside income and my colleagues are angry and mean to me. Um, I got rid of this uh, legal bribery called this uh, Lulu and the speaker slush fund to bribe council members to do what they want uh, with extra pay. And um, every now and then I'm like, Gail, they're so mean to me in the council. And Gail's like, F them, who cares? Wow. So like, I really wish I had that part of the like, who cares what anyone thinks, keep doing the right thing. And she gives me those pep talks more often than I'd like to admit to. When we work together, I try to give her credit on things. And it, you can watch any event where both of us are there. And if I say not something nice about her, she like yells at me. It's like, Ben, stop it. If I give her credit on things, she yells at me. So I've now started just saying, I'd like to say nice things about Gail Brewer, but I can't because she'll yell at me. <laughs> So do you see um, the borough president position as a political jumping off point to a higher office or, um, or what do you see it as? That question makes me so angry. I know he wrote it. I, I didn't write it. No, no, but no, I think no, it's a it's fair not question. That you asked it. It's just, it makes me so angry because people, you, the question is fair. It is cynical and it is everything that is wrong with politics. And um, so many people, when I got elected, I started um, doing things to piss people off. So like not taking real estate money, I rewrote the new campaign finance system, getting rid of outside income, getting rid of Lulu's. And one of my colleagues, and let's just call him Aaron Burr said to me, like Ben, like you're doing a lot. You're making a lot of waves. You're breaking a lot of eggs. And like maybe, you should just keep your head down, go raise money, 
go run for something. And once you get to the next office, then you can do the stuff that matters. And um, that's basically what I heard there was what, what Hamilton heard of like, uh, talk less, smile more. And I just said to the person, listen, no moment is guaranteed. I don't know that I'm going to get tomorrow. I don't know that I'm going to get a second term. I don't know that I'm going to get borough president. I don't know I'm going to get anything from there. And so every moment is precious. If you ever watch my state of the district, I have this spiel where I say, I've been a council member for seven years, five months, 11 days, 19 hours, 53 minutes, and 14 seconds. And that's a way of communicating how precious every moment is. And so for the borough president, I get so upset when folks are like, oh, it doesn't have a role. And it does because it's in the city charter. And I'm a lawyer. I read the city charter. Actually, I'm the only candidate in this race who actually helped pass multiple charter amendments. It's our city's constitution. And one of the things I did is I changed the powers of the borough president. The first power I changed is that the borough president's uh, budget used to be set by the council and the mayor. So if you're a budget borough president who is independent, you're going to get your budget slashed like Helen Marshall and Queens did. That's not possible anymore. The other piece that I did is I changed how the land use process worked so that the community got earlier notice. Um, and one place where Gail Brewer and I have had a very big disagreement, I even had to debate her, which is not a place I like to being, but I did it anyway because I respect her, is term limits for community boards. Um, and uh, they're actually going to be going into effect in 2021 with the first person coming off community board community boards in 2029. Uh, by that point, my three-year-old daughter will be graduating middle school. So the next borough president will have the responsibility of building a uh, transfer of knowledge system for community boards. Uh, the borough president can appoint community boards. I've done a lot of community board reform in my own district. I'd like to do it elsewhere. The borough president has authority over land use. And I've used my land use process to quote unquote break ULERP. Uh, so that we could actually stop super talls on the Upper East Side and Upper West Side. And the borough president actually has an incredible budget power that Gail has been using and we've worked together on. Uh, I've been using it to actually bring 3K to the Upper West Side. Uh, Gail's been using it to try to get social workers in schools, which I would want to continue. Which of the mayoral candidates would you rather work with? I will work with anybody who gets elected mayor. Uh, I probably have a pretty strong reputation of being independent. That's why I rewrote the charter so that the borough president's budget would be uh, completely independent of whoever the next mayor is. I have spent the past seven and a half years pummeling Mayor de Blasio. He made a promise of universal pre-K, but we never got it on the east side or the west side. We were able to get a thousand seats in my district uh, he made a promise of 3K for all, but we didn't get it on the east side or west side, but I won both for the districts. And so if I get another person who is antithetical to the things we need, like laptops for kids or social workers in schools or stopping buildings for billionaires, I'm just going to pummel whoever he or she is. <laughs> uh, if it's a person who isn't well well read about how politics work. What I've discovered is I, I think I passed my most bills in the first six months of the city council. 
when the speaker and the mayor were still trying to figure out where the bathroom was. Oh, so if there's a person who doesn't cool. know what they're doing, I'm just going to run circles around them. I know where the budget, how to do the budget. I know how to pass laws. We'll get things done and they'll just be trying to figure out what happened. And if it's somebody who's ideologically aligned, I'm really hoping that I'll be able to go with them. Some of the people running for mayor are sponsors of my legislation of like the, the textbooks for everybody. So I would just say like, I want to be fair to a bunch of candidates. Eric Adams is on the laptops bill. So if Eric Adams were mayor, I don't think I'd have to fight him very hard to give uh, young people, particularly of color and low income communities, laptops. I think he's on board. I would just call him and say, Eric, I made this campaign promise. It's going to cost me a lot of capital. Can you just do it? Uh, and I think he would just say, Ben, we ran on this. We're good. Same deal with Catherine Garcia. Um, we've been working to get snow plows for bike lanes and pedestrian intersections. We agreed on it. I bought them for the east side. I bought two of them. Mayor de Blasio won't deploy them. It's been a running gag. I don't know if you've heard about Catherine Garcia and the and the snow plows, but that's me. Snow plows and for the bike lanes. For the bike lanes and pedestrian intersections. Have you ever like had the snow? Oh and yeah. Then you can't cross the corner because there's a giant pile, and like you step in, and then you get all the cold water in your uh, right shoe. right and through your shoe you and your socks. You could easily yeah. fall too if someone. Yeah. So you know. we've been working on that. So I know we could get that done together. So Ben, you have an interesting approach to how the voter can differentiate between the candidates for Manhattan Borough President. So this is something that as a good government person and been struggling with, because I wrote the new campaign finance system. If all the elected officials, if all the candidates are doing their homework, you're going to get all the same answers. So in this current moment, everyone's talking about public safety. Everyone's talking about jobs. Everyone's talking about affordable housing. If you look at the voter guide, all the answers are the same. That's yep. And so the big question I have just for democracy is how can you tell the candidates apart? So for my part, I have actually introduced legislation, NASCAR legislation to force elected officials and candidates to show where their money came from. Mm. Cause it's, it, it's hard for me to believe that somebody's going to do one thing when they're just follow the money. So I was trying to put in the voter guide, there was going to be a pie chart that said where people got their money. Was it real estate or this industry or that industry? It didn't get it passed for, obvious reasons uh, about how corrupt the government is. But um, I think the questions you asked were all questions that were very hard to fake answers for. And I hope <laughs> your listeners hear it, get to know folks and can tell the difference between it. Or, or there's a show that I watch every now and then called To Tell the Truth. So whether or not they'll be able to spot the liar and spell the, spot the person telling the truth. Ben Callos, thank you so much for joining us. Um, presently the City Council Representative of Manhattan District 5. Congratulations on the work you've done and good luck on your future. It's been great talking to you. And getting to know you a little bit. Thank you for having me. If folks like what they hear or they dislike what they hear, they can hit us on social media at Kalos, K-A-L-L-O-S. Uh, they can also hit our campaign at uh, kalos.nyc. And they can learn for themselves why folks are considering that this whole race for borough president has gotten a little bananas. Yeah, 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 yeah bananas. That's exactly right. Again, thank you very much. Thank you. And back at Gephard's, we talked with Louis Pugliafito. He ran for state assembly last year on a Republican liberal ticket and lost to Democrat Rebecca Seawright. 
As far as we know, this was the first public office Lewis had ever run for, and he did quite well. Lewis's day job is as union doorman and has been a shop steward, producer, and host of a public access show called Decent Life. He was an IT manager for over 20 years with Fortune 100 companies and a 2010 census filer operations supervisor. I do my own public uh, we We have that here. Yes, oh, yes, yes. So tell us about Decent Life. Decent Life, I started back in uh, 2010. What happened was, what happened was, at the dinner table, my son said to me, I'm tired of hearing all your opinions. <laughs> you're, you're preaching to the choir. Go out and see how people like it, like your opinions and not know what you want to do. Yeah. So I said, you know what? So I did. Yeah. I went out <laughs> and, you know, I started to um, go to different groups, you know, mm -hmm. whether I agreed with them or not, because I feel that, you know, uh, diverse opinions lead to doable solutions. Best one I thought was Food and Water Watch. I mean, they, they do a great job. But Say that again? Food and Water Watch. And what is that? That is an organization started a runner from uh, Ralph Nader mm -hmm. uh, a long time ago. And basically what they do is, is what they say, they uh, food, water, uh, environmental protection things. And that, right now they're doing fracking and stopping the uh, Brooklyn pipeline over there that they're trying to build over there. Okay. So they're, they're, they're involved in various things. And these are the kinds of topics you talk about on Decent Life. I talk about uh, everything because I, I want to interject love into everyday life and you know, I talk about what goes on in the paper and so on like that because I really feel what's missing in our society and especially in, in politics is empathy. Everybody's looking to label everything, put you aside anyway. When I grew up, you know, I'm a kid from the 60s. There was no such thing as a label. You know, you accept the people who they were. You know, if they're good or bad, you know, that's up to them. But it didn't matter to me. I'm running is, is to show them that there's, there's another path here. And uh, one of them is, is to love your neighbor. And one of the main things about loving your labor, neighbor is you, we look at each other as peers. And when you look at each other as peers, you work so much well together instead of you thinking that you have to compete to someone with someone, you're, you're my enemy. Just and stranger. I you, just I don't want to I don't want to know yeah, you because you're just you're a stranger to me. Exactly. So I'm looking at a whole different way of of doing things. You know, people say I'm naive, but hey, you know, that's the best thing because we're all here for each other. You know, so it's basically when you help others, you're helping yourself. So when you love your neighbor, you're loving yourself, you're loving God, you're loving nature. I, I wasn't I wasn't going to ask about this, but I'm now in the middle of I just met someone who I, I really like one way, but another way she's very much a supporter of ideas that I just can't support. I don't know what your positions are, but she's anti-vaxxer, she believes that, that January 6th was not an insurrection, and I, I, I haven't figured out you know where, where you stand, but I don't know how to talk to her or to someone who has those kinds of beliefs. Maybe you can help me. Well, I, I think the first thing is to listen to what they have to say, you know, because to have a good conversation, you have to be a good listener, you know? You have to, don't like blow them off, oh my God, what are you doing? And, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and then gradually go into, well, you know, if, if we, let's look at the facts, you know? Let's, especially with the, what was going on on uh, January 6th, mm -hmm. you know, let's look at the facts and so on. And you could go through the, you know, there were 60 court cases, all either thrown out or lost, 
and even by hand-picked Trump judges. You could go and say... Yeah, you could look at the facts. But, I mean, I, that, but if, if they still come up to that point, then you know what? The light switch isn't going to go on. But you still could ha- be friends with them. But That's you know what, what I they want. are. I want to be friends, but I don't want to talk politics. And just don't talk it. <laughs> don't talk it. Okay, yeah. Luke. I'm going to tell, tell you a story. Get you know, permission. Me, me and my brother don't talk about some stuff. And you know what? That's good. We have a relationship. We have coffee. And we know, don't talk about this because it opens scars. You know, it opens you. But let's, let's find common ground and resolve our issues. And you know, and I think I'm pretty much uh, have the personality for that. I think you know, my opponent last year called me a people person. See, it didn't matter what my positions were, but I was a people person. That's afraid of everything. But and that's good. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. That's I agree from your you. opponent, right? Exactly. From and, Rebecca Seawright. Yeah, you know, and um, <clears throat> they they had to pull out all the stops last year. You know, they they raised five hundred grand. Last year, mostly from Albany packs, and uh, you know that she had the gaudy signs hanging out. She had five foot signs hanging out. <laughs> but basically, that's how desperate they were. They rolled out. Uh, not even that. Uh, they had Biden. They had Cuomo. They had Gillibrand. They had Schumer. And yet, you, you fared pretty well. Forty-two percent. Wow. And and what the real value of my my campaign and why I'm running again is is because a third of my votes were crossover votes. Third of those votes were non-Republican voters, which means the message I have is about the neighborhood and how to get things done. So last year I was on Roosevelt Island, and this I saw this lady running towards me. She was far away. Then I saw she was waving at me. She came. She was a young woman, and she comes over to me and she goes, "You know, I wasn't going to vote this year, but you know, I heard about you, you know, and your grassroots campaign." I registered to vote, and I'm going to vote for you. And that's what got me. So my message isn't just for older folks. I don't know how to break like I say, but the younger generation, the millennials, they get what I'm after. Because you know what? I have grandchildren. I got five of them. What is their future? Even now, because I don't know if you know it, before the pandemic, I worked at night as a doorman, right? It's a, it's a union job. I worked at night as a doorman. And three days a week, week I took care of my grandkids. So a mom and dad could go to work, and I'm there, but I, I enjoyed it, and you know, it's coming back again. I'm getting ready to go back out there again. Even with both of them having good jobs, it's still a struggle. Right. I right. mean, housing, education, right. even to put food on the table. You know, it, it's so hard. So I'm out here saying, you know what? The Democrats have been in charge of the city for how long? And what has changed? You still got the homeless in the street. You still have housing, affordable housing problems. What happens when you have a one-party town? Nobody could step out of line. I mean, even Republicans, I'm not saying it's just Democrats. Let's talk about, let's do what's really common sense. I mean, just with bail reform, you could have went to look to New Jersey and see what they did before running your, your own stuff. Let's see what works. And then if we need to tweak it, let's tweak it. Because, you know, in my corporate career, you know, I was in IT. And that's all I did. We looked at processes and how do you do it better? How do you make things easier, not just for the customer, but for the person who has to do the processing and so on. So nothing's out of touch. And in that role, you know, I have to manage expectations. I have to make sure things are running on time. You know, 
it's a lot of project management stuff which will come into uh, Manhattan Borough President. Uh, if there's one issue that you were running on that you, if, you know, when you, when and if you get elected, what's the one issue you would make sure that would happen? You have to have safe streets. You have to have a, a safe city. All right. I remember the 70s and 80s. It was crazy. You know, but we don't want to get back we to that time. Then, yeah. Yeah, no, we don't want to get back to that. I lived through it. You guys lived through it. I remember when 14th Street was nothing but the, you know, pimps, hookers, you know, and, and junkies and down there. Really Ninth Avenue, Eighth yeah. Avenue, even. Yeah. yeah so it's uh, we want the police to protect people, and we also don't want people to fear the police. So what we need to do is make sure we have a mix of community and the police to get things going because you to get the empathy to get the knowledge of the neighborhood you have to work together and what i really miss and what they're not doing is have a cop on the beat have more cops walking instead of driving i could see maybe at night drive their car but during the day come out and walk what a what a strange idea a cop on the beat just instead walk. of in the car yeah just come out and walk you don't don't come across as a politician because i don't think you are a politician no, I just want to get things done. You just want to get things done. There you go. Yeah. I just need to, to put, make one point out. The problem is, as running as a, as a Republican, is that fundraising is very hard. Because uh, Republicans don't want to invest in Manhattan. And what I would say to everybody They see is, it as a losing cause. They see it as a losing cause. But here I am, 42% of the vote last year, which means Democrats voted for me, Independents voted for and me. And that was for the state assembly. That's for the state assembly right. seat. Now is, is that this New York City campaign finance board is saying we're matching New York City residents donations eight to one so if somebody donates ten dollars that's ninety dollars there you go it, it gives me a leg up we're talking to Louis Puliafito who is uh, works as a doorman but is running for a b- very big position Manhattan Borough President we uh, we wish you luck it's great meeting Th- you thanks and you know if anybody wants to see uh, my uh, my agenda and stuff go to louforall.com louforall.com and you've got your agenda yeah and I'm I'm open we feel fortunate that we have gotten to meet and talk with each of these candidates for Manhattan Borough President it sure has helped me to come to some ideas about who I want to vote for I'm telling you it's it's great being able to talk kind of very selfishly to the candidate and not everyone gets a chance to do that and people should try to do that because it is feel very special yeah it really uh, it really helps so just as we feel The best conversations happen at our neighborhood bars. Alan and I believe that local decision makers are the ones that affect us most directly, where we live and work, and that it is important that we elect local representatives that most closely reflect our values and hopes for our communities and city. Today is the first day of this election cycle primary, so go Go vote. Yeah, now you have a, you have a, up until the twenty second, so um, get, get get your vote in for the primary. This is Bar Crawl Radio podcast. If you like what you hear in our varied programming, let us know at barcrawlradio at gmail dot com. All right. So, sweetie, I've got one question for you: Who are you voting for for, for Manhattan Borough President? Come on. No. Don't Come know. on. Don't know. I can't say. All right. Well, you let me know when you decide. Yeah, that's true. I will.